Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. He didn't look like the massive man that he was portrayed as from the past. So it was really kind of sad to see him that way. That's uh, Lisa Lund Lublin, one of the accusers of Bill Cosby, who uh, was found guilty on three felony charges of sexual misconduct and could be receiving 30 years in prison. Joining us is Gloria Allred. Ms. Allred is a California human rights and women's rights attorney, and we've spoken to her uh, many times about Bill Cosby over the last several years. Her... Uh, her book is titled Fight Back and Win. Well, they did and they did. Ms. Ms. Allred, didn't they? they? They did and they did. Oh, absolutely. Um, and these accusers were so, so courageous. And I might add that Andre Constant also, of course, has our admiration uh, big time because what she went through is just, I mean, very few people could have stood up to the kind of scorching uh, examination, cross-examination by the defense team for Mr. Cosby, and also uh, just the name-calling and the, I don't even, I'm not even going to repeat some of the outrageous names that she was called, challenging her motives, challenging the motives of the other accusers, um, and, you know, it did backfire, I think, on the defense. It's a big turnoff for the jury, although we'll have to wait for the jury if any of them begin to talk soon. Uh, you know, to to hear from them, but it was just so over the top. But they were courageous. Each one of the five accusers, and I represent three of the five, Shalon Lasha and Lee Slott Lublin and uh, Janice Baker McKinney, they just stood up and gave it back. They didn't crumble at all. They were They were really tough on the defense when they answered. They were not willing to let their words be spun in a different direction or distorted or... Uh, you know, but the attempts to denigrate them, to de- discredit them by the defense, I mean, it was it was really something to see the way these very courageous women, f- in Shalon's case, fought through the tears and answered the questions, and the other ones were just not going to be bullied. It, it was wonderful. They did fight back, and they did win. The first time you and I spoke about Bill Cosby uh, under these circumstances, there was no assurance where this was going. There was no no idea of where it eventually would wind up. I mean, there was an ex- there was a hopeful expectation, I think, but we, nobody knew it was going to wind up the way it did. When you were in that courtroom and that jury came in and you heard them say what they said, what did you feel like? I was in shock, Roy. I, I really was stunned. I, I had no expectation that they would come back with guilty, guilty, guilty. Three of the most beautiful words I've ever heard uh, for, uh, as applied to Mr. Cosby. I, you know, we're so used to women not being believed. And I've said often, you know, how many women does it take to make accusations against a rich, powerful, famous man before even one woman is going to be believed? Well, in this case, there were six. And uh, finally, they were believed. It was, it was just it was stunning, and I'm very happy this day has come. Is he going to prison? We'll have to see what the judge does. I, I think he should spend time in custody. He's been convicted of three serious felonies, aggravated indecent sexual assault. One is without consent. The other one is, uh, you know, when the victim was unconscious. 
And the other one is when she was substantially impaired. And so I do think he should spend time in custody. The fact that he's 80 years old uh, should not uh, be a mitigating factor. Uh, he, he needs to understand that what happened was serious. There were serious consequences for, you know, Ms. Constant and certainly for many, many other accusers as well, even though he was not charged with those crimes. Obviously, the jury must have found that he had a common plan and a scheme and a design to drug and, and sexually assault women. Yeah, I think he should spend time in prison. I don't think he's going to spend 30 years. Uh, the potential is 10 years on each charge that he was convicted of. Um, I will be surprised if he even spends 10 years. But we'll see what the court does. Right now, there's going to be a sexual uh, an assessment uh, called sexually violent predator assessment. And then we'll see what the sentencing report recommends. So how does his life change right now? Well, he's under house arrest. Okay. Um, I mean, his reputation is completely, I think, destroyed as an entertainer. Right. There are many television uh, outlets who are now, if they if they were still running anything to do with Bill Cosby, are you know are, are quickly taking it off the air. Uh, obviously, he can't do endorsements or commercials. He's not going to be the Jello Man anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, now he's also facing civil lawsuits. I mean, I have one. We're going back to court on May 23rd, Roy, uh, on our civil lawsuit on behalf of Judy Huff, who alleges she was 15 years old when uh, she was the victim of uh, child sexual abuse by Mr. Cosby at the Playboy Mansion. So, you know, these, and there are other civil suits going on as well. So this is not the end of it. His team says, well, they're going to appeal. Uh, well, you know, anybody can appeal. Uh, it doesn't mean they're going to be successful on appeal. Uh, I think uh, they're unlikely to be successful, but we'll have to wait and see. And then the question is, once they file the notice of appeal, which no doubt they will, whether the court pending the appeal is going to require Mr. Cosby to spend time in custody. We don't know the answer to that yet. Okay. What I was really curious about, and you just talked about uh, the, the, the the previous court cases, and, and you, Judy Huth, we, you and I have talked about Judy Huth, your mm-hmm. client, uh, on a number of occasions. But what was different about this court appearance, about this particular trial, from the one last summer? It, was a, it wasn't the same jury, but they were deadlocked and uh, and it became uh, a mistrial. It was declared a mistrial. Well, a what was different? A major difference was the fact in the first trial, the prosecution asked to be able to put on 13 other accusers. Of course, the defense wanted no other accusers other than Andrea Costin. The court only allowed one, and that was my client, but that, uh, Kelly Johnson, very brave young woman as well, but one was not enough, and I said at the end of the first trial, I hope at the second trial, even though it's the same judge, that the prosecution will renew its motion to have more accusers testify. And sure enough, the prosecution did renew its motion. Again, the defense said, no, we want zero, none. And this time, the court allowed five. I think that made a very big difference because also... You know, the prosecution was able to demonstrate that Mr. Cosby could not have been mistaken about whether Andre Constant consented. If he had a pattern of drugging and then while women were incapacitated as a result of the drugs, uh, sexually assaulting them, then he knew they couldn't consent if they were drugged. 
Uh, they couldn't consent or not consent. They had no capacity mm-hmm. one way or another to do that, and and so therefore I think they proved their case. I think this was. I think the accusers were very significant in all of this, and I will predict that in in terms of the grounds for appeal, that that will be a major issue that will be raised by Mr. Cosby's defense. I'm guessing he didn't uh, help his cause any with his outburst at the end of the uh, of the day and proceedings when he called the district attorney um, expletive deleted and and uh, and, sh- and shouted and became quite animated, I guess. Yeah, and, and in a way, it was weird because he dissociated. I mean, he he did that, you know, called that uh, the, dis- the prosecutor an expletive. But then he went on to say that he doesn't have a private jet, meaning as though he's talking about somebody else. The prosecutor was talking about him and the risk of flight uh, that he may have a private jet have access to and therefore, you know, his bail should be revoked, he should be taken into custody, or the bail should be increased. And that's when Mr. Cosby shouted that out. He doesn't have a private jet, and it's expletive. But, you know, he didn't say, I don't. He said, he doesn't, as though we're talking about somebody that's not Mr. Cosby, when in fact we're talking about Mr. Cosby. Third person. Very strange. Yes, it is. Well, it's been, uh, how long has it been for you now? How long have you been uh, on, on this case? Well, I think I started bringing women out at the end of 2014. Yeah. Every month, two or three women to give voice to what they said was the truth about their lives. And on and on. And we did that every month until finally he was charged December 30th, 2015 with these criminal acts. So you'll see, by the way, you know, I have a documentary, Seeing All Red, that's available on Netflix. In the, in the documentary, and it's streaming now, you can see many of the Cosby accusers telling what happened to them. And in addition to that, some of those the women who actually testified, my clients whom I just named, they're in that documentary, and you can judge for yourself how you feel about them. But the wonderful thing about all of this, Roy, is women have finally been believed. And that in itself is a huge step forward because many women don't report because they feel they won't be believed. Now I think Me Too has entered the courtroom and... Uh, the culture has shifted in favor of women and, and victims' stories. It's also encouraging and comforting to have Gloria Allred on your side. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm honored to be able to support them and, and, and assist them and advise them, yeah. uh, you know, as they journey through this Brave very, women. very difficult path of having to relive what they say happened to them yeah. and then being attacked for it. But they did it. They did it for the cause of justice and Roy justice has prevailed. Very brave women. Ms. Allred, thank you so much for all the time you've spent with us on the Bill thank Cosby you. case. I'm thank sure we'll, uh, we'll be talking again as the appeal is launched, but thank you for today. And, and, and also on the sentencing, which will be 60 to 90 days, there's no, no date yet. Okay. Thank you so much. All right. All the Wonderful. Best. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Gloria Allred from Los Angeles. Her book is Fight Back and Win. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Now, what's going to happen on the 12th of May when the President of the United States makes his decision about the extension of, or not to extend, the Iran nuclear deal? The President of France, uh, Monsieur Macron, was in Washington last week and trying to persuade President Trump to carry on with the Iran deal. But it looks as though the president has decided that's not the way he's going to go. And joining us to speak about that is Benham Ben Taleblu. He's the 
Iran Deal Specialist. He's a research fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies in Washington. Mr. Taylor Blue, thank you very much for the time. What is the logical reason for the president to say, we're not going to continue with this the way it is? Uh, well, first and foremost, great to be with you. I think the president has uh, sufficiently critiqued the deal both when he was a uh, campaigning when he was president-elect and when he finally entered office in January 2017. Uh, since that time, the administration has rolled out a comprehensive Iran strategy that says the Iran nuclear issue does not sufficiently define the threat posed uh, by the Islamic Republic of Iran to U.S. allies' interest and security. Um, so I think there's sufficient criticism against the deal there because it's front-loaded, gives the Islamic Republic too much. Um, and that Iran can simply gain more by staying in the deal, and the nature of uh, Iran's concessions uh, are not at the same level of the U.S. concessions. That being said, he actually hasn't made a decision yet, and I think we're going to be going down to a, a bit of a nail-biter on this one until May 10 or May 11. Uh, yeah, if, if, if you're going to bet $2 or $100 or $1,000, and I know they're taking bets at the, uh, at the legal betting shops in the U.K. on this, the betting is that President Trump will say, we will not continue with this the way it is, because, as you say, he's been talking about this deal, saying it's the worst deal in history, certainly for the United States. Why, then, are the Europeans, why, then, are the French, why is the EU so sold on continuing with the deal as it is? Well, there's three reasons why I see the Europeans uh, being so steadfast and wanting to continue with the JCPOA. Uh, the first is, of course, commercial. Uh, uh, there wouldn't be any secondary sanctions on EU banks or businesses uh, doing transactions with Iran uh, as long as the JCPOA is enforced. In fact, the longer the JCPOA is enforced, the less restrictions will actually be on Iran, the greater the opportunity for commercial contracts for Europe. The second is that you know the deal was negotiated over a period of a year and a half, almost two years, and had a significant multilateral international component to it. And if you're a proponent of multilateral diplomacy, um, and you are a member of the EU, and if you're someone like Federica Mogherini, who's that uh, EU foreign policy and security uh, chief, then you're going to see this as a deal that's worth defending and preserving because there's sufficient time and energy put into it, and uh, they view it as an accomplishment. And uh, Europe doesn't tend to take the same view of the Iran threat that the U.S. does, which is they see more opportunities for business, and the U.S. sees more opportunities uh, to actually contain and, and deter and roll back uh, a key regional security threat. Uh, so when you say when you say normative. when you say key regional security threat, we're talking about the development of nuclear weapons by Iran, and they've made it very clear they don't believe Israel has the right to exist. So that threat is not to be taken lightly from a regime such as the one in Iran. So what can the president do to forestall Iran's accelerating? Um, developing such a weapon if the deal is modified significantly into the displeasure of the mullahs in Tehran? Well, I think that that's it. Uh, diplomacy will be needed to combat the Iranian nuclear challenge, but it should be good diplomacy, principled diplomacy. And what that means is getting a fix that actually addresses the ballistic missile threat, which in March 2016, Iran tested a nuclear-capable, medium-range ballistic missile with the words written on it, uh, Death to Israel. Uh, so that, to me, that's, that's pretty much incitement, uh, case in point. So it's the flight testing of those missiles that a, uh, a nuclear deal should actually attempt to address. 
it's uh, access to military sites where there's likely weaponization activities going on. So broadening the scope of the deal and making sure that if the U.S. is, is waiving its key tools of financial warfare, economic sanctions, it's doing so because the plethora of Iran's threats are being countered, not just one or two. And clearly Iran wants to drive a wedge between Europe and, and the United Absolutely. States. Absolutely. In fact, uh, President Rouhani, back in the day when he was chief nuclear negotiator from 2003 to 2005, he bragged that under his tenure, um, Iran was not referred to the Security Council. Its nuclear case was dealt with uh, explicitly in the International Atomic Energy Agency, and that he had basically uh, used Europe against America. And that time it was Bush administration. Okay. Uh, the goal here is, is uh, simply to do the same, is to sick Europe, to sick international institutions like the UN uh, and the Security Council on America. Thank you so much for the time, uh, Mr. Talablu. I appreciate it. And we'll see what happens on the on the 12th of May. That's right. Thank you so much. There's uh, Ben, I'm ben uh, Talablu from the, uh, let me get this correct, the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Uh, Richard Curlin joins us on The Roy Green Show on the Corridor's Radio Network. He knows the Quebec uh, immigration system probably better than anybody. He knows the federal immigration system probably better than anybody. And uh, he's our go-to voice. So, Richard, what, what exactly is wrong about what's happening on Roxham Road between Champlain, New York, and Côte du Lac, Quebec. Well, you know, what's exactly wrong, uh, the finger-pointing starts with our good neighbor to the south. It's not what's happening on our side of the border. It's what's happening on the American side of the border. It's like a toothpaste tube. You give it the Trump squeeze, and Canada takes on additional intake of uh, American... Uh, lodged uh, individuals who seek uh, to lay claims in Canada. So, you know, we're doing it right in Canada. I've read the internal reports from CBSA and the higher-ups of Ottawa Immigration Management. They're, they're taking in daily reports. They canvass the CBSA officers. We're not walking blind into the summer refugee claim season. It's carefully calculated. And uh, this time around, Canada is working even smarter, likely on standby, are individuals, communication teams, who will leave Canada and enter the affected communities within the United States to debunk social media. But they've been doing that, Richard. They've been doing it, obviously, with not the effect that they expected, because the border crossings are continuing. And they're expected to increase. And Jean-Pierre Fortin, the mm. president of the uh, CBSA, says they don't have enough agents. They don't have enough people. They can't do the job they're supposed to do. And so our border has become porous. I understand what you're saying. The Americans should be stopping people from leaving the United States or slowing them down. Is that what you're saying? Well, yeah, it's a little more than that. I mean, you know, since 9-11... Tens of billions of dollars have been thrown at border security yeah. in the United States. And, yeah. you know, don't tell me that the Americans don't have the technical means to not only survey, uh, watch who's going into the United States, but the same mechanism, watch who leaves. 
And if there are individuals... Well, what, do you, what, what, are they, what should they do, Richard? What should the Americans well, do? here's the thing. I, I've, I've seen... T- we should be sending a Trump tape where he says in public that an invoice, basically, for services rendered should be sent to Mexico no. for their failure to control people entering the United States, what's good for the goose is good for the no, look, look, let's talk about Let's talk about Canada. We have, a, yeah. we have a law about entering Canada. We have people who are, we have laws about entering Canada. We have people who are waiting outside this country patiently, mm. year after year after year, to get into the country and do it legally and do it properly. What we have now is the result of the Prime Minister of Canada's tweet, mm. welcoming the world to Canada, it doesn't matter that the federal government sent various people to various communities, ethnic communities in the United States, saying don't come to this country because you don't have the kind of freedoms and opportunities that you think you have, that you've been told you have. It doesn't exist that like that in Canada. But they're coming. And what are we doing? I, I feel for these people. Trust me. I feel, And I understand that they want a better life. I get all of that. But we're a country of laws and our border is significant, should be sacrosanct. And I do have a concern, Richard. That there are people who have ill intent to Canada, ill intent to the people of Canada, who will take advantage of an opportunity like this to get themselves into the country. And that's what we got to watch. And I know the the person who's on top of this watching for precisely that is over at the office of the Quebec Premier, because they're footing the bill for the federal level's failure to adequately control and manage our Canadian border. So people do enter legally. It's not against the law to make a refugee claim in Canada with an illegal entry, uh, but someone's paying the bill until there's an, a refugee decision. And in large part, it's the problems of Quebec. So if the Prime Minister puts on the political hat, acts smart, cut that $100 million check, hand it over to the Quebec Premier, that will help trampoline Quebec uh, claimants over to Ontario. If you, if you enter Canada from the United States, and if you're seeking refugee status, you're supposed to apply for refugee status in the U.S. That's the fundamentals of a yeah. safe third country agreement. And if you, if you wander across, if you, if you wander across at Lacalle, which is the big, huge border crossing between Quebec and, and New York State, as you know, if you try to enter there, the way they're entering on Roxham Road, going to be turned back. You know how tough it is to look into the face of a refugee I, I don't doubt that, my friend. Wait. I get it. Right after this show, I'm heading to a birthday party. First year in Canada, Syrian refugee family. And I know they're asking me, how can I help my sister and my brother in Syria? What do you mean it takes four years? I'm watching TV. People are crossing the border into Quebec now they're not waiting four years what do you tell these people so yeah we have look the way we the way we should be doing it as we should have long ago decided that we would go to refugee producing countries and find people who who really need this country and bring them here and have a managing manageable number we cannot just we can't do what germany did right but here's a $200 million immediate policy solution, by the way. Okay. Canada selects government-assisted refugees. They're all queued up. They're coming in every month. We have groups of people in Canada, faith-based and others, who want to pony up cash, $50,000 per family. They want a refugee to help. They're told it takes four years. Toss that system. 
If we have an inventory of people willing to help with cash in hand, match them up with the government-assisted refugees who are going to be here next month. Everyone's happy, including the taxpayer, because we will save with that simple upgrade two hundred million a year. If they're ve- if they if they if they're if they're properly vetted refugee claimants, that's yeah. the right thing to do. And they're all vetted in terms of their claims. But the people who are walking across the border, God love them, they're not vetted. Yeah. Well, if they're not vetted and they're in the United States for that period of time, it's pretty low risk, even for Canada. I I think you're reaching. (laughs) Only for good things. I think you're reaching. It's always great speaking with you, my friend. Thank you for the time. Thank you. Keep well. Bye-bye. Richard Curland. He's advised both the federal and the Quebec governments on immigration and refugee matters. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Michelle Rempel joins us on The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. She's the Conservative Party of Canada, immigration critic, citizenship and immigration critic on this issue of Canada's borders. And uh, what to do with the people who are crossing the border from the United States. Again, we're the safe third country agreement demands that refugee claimants make their claim and see the claim through to the end. Michelle, thank you for the time. And and how do you assess what's going on and and what the government is doing, isn't doing, and should be doing? So what's happening is uh, people are illegally entering Canada through um, non-official points of entry, and they are claiming asylum in our country. And that's, of course, entering from the United States of America, which is of course, most people in the world would consider a safe country to the extent that the uh, a liberal government in 2002 created an agreement that said that if you've claimed asylum in the United States, you um, cannot claim asylum in Canada, with very few exceptions. And the problem that we're seeing today is that that agreement doesn't talk about what happens if you illegally enter the country. So people are taking advantage of that loophole and coming into the country en masse. And this, of course, happened after the Prime Minister tweeted out hashtag Welcome to Canada, January 2017. We went from very low numbers the year before to 20,000 people entering the country this way. And now this year, um, estimates have us on course for about 50 to 70,000 people uh, coming in this, this year through that way. And this is a problem because unplanned immigration, especially humanitarian immigration, we do want to help the world's most vulnerable, requires a plan, given that um, most people who claim asylum require um, subsidized housing, uh, access to the health care system, and uh, social assistance. And without a plan, um, it creates a burden on these programs. And uh, certainly we saw this in Toronto, news breaking that I think it was 40% of the uh, usage of Toronto's uh, um, housing or homeless shelters were from asylum claimants. And uh, the Quebec government, of course, calling Ottawa's response unacceptable. So what's happened to date is the Liberal government, instead of trying to fix the loophole in the Safe Third Country Agreement, which is incentivizing uh, people to enter the country through this way, they have put hundreds of millions of dollars to basically assist people who have decided to come into the country this way. Uh, Everything from helping their um, process their paperwork more quickly uh, to... um, building essentially a tent city or a refugee camp at the U.S.-Canada border, and this is unacceptable. We should be managing a fair, planned asylum system, uh, or immigration system. We should be helping the world's most vulnerable 
this situation is uh, frankly out of control and uh, the government needs to do something to get us back to order uh, rather than simply throwing money at the problem and making it worse. We're also legitimizing border violators, people who don't really have um, anything but an economic desire to be in Canada, which is also understandable, depending on where in the world you are. But just because it's understandable doesn't mean that it should be accommodated. Well, the problem is, is we don't know who these people are, right? This is right. The reason why we have economic streams and humanitarian streams is that allows us to plan the number of people that we'll accept under each budget accordingly. Uh, the provinces have a role to play in that discussion. But what's happening right now is, you know, we don't know who these people are, but we don't know if they're coming in for economic reasons or if they have a legitimate asylum claims. And the problem is because the process by which we determine that through the Immigration Refugee Board, this is the body that processes these claims, we're looking at potentially up to 11-year wait times for these claims to be processed. And, uh, you know, frankly, that's unacceptable because during that period of time, uh, people are entitled to access our social uh, programs, and we certainly don't have a plan to deal with that. Um, and people, many new Canadians who have come to Canada legally are looking at this and going, you know, I've got relatives waiting in the queue. Um, so, so certainly I think this is a very unacceptable process that the government, that Justin Trudeau has put a lot of attention on in terms of a permanent fix. And uh, I, I think many Canadians are really questioning his ability to manage our borders, and it has a human cost, right? Yeah, uh, the, we also know from the Journal de Montréal and uh, from the Canada Border Services Agency, from Jean-Pierre Fortin, their president, that the government has issued a directive to CBSA border officials to not talk to media. Yeah, this is not your right. There's all designated people. I understand that under, certain, under circumstances, you want to have want to speak with one voice. But if the situation is pell-mell and out of control in a certain area, then I, would, then I would want to know that. I would want to know what's going on. And it suggests to me that they don't, the federal government is afraid of the word getting out of just how out of control some areas are. You know, I think it's, what the government is trying to do here, what Justin Trudeau is trying to do, is really hoping that Canadians are not going to pay attention to this. Right. Um, but it's really it's sort of hypocritical, given that he was very excited and very happy to take photo ops with you know refugees at airports. You know, I have to wonder if he is so excited to do the same thing with people who've been in homeless shelters for a long period of time. Um, and you know, it, it gets worse for him when he does things like stand you know, in front of an auditorium full of people in Edmonton and tell a veteran that he's asking more than Canada can give. And then prioritize hundreds of millions of dollars for people who are coming into the country uh, through unofficial points of entry. And that, to me, is, uh, you know, just, he's not doing his job. Like, you know, the point I've been trying to make very strongly, Roy, is that I believe in immigration. I mean, my family are immigrants. We are a country of immigration. The problem is, is that people lose that social license for immigration if the process is not run 
in an orderly, planned way? And how can we help the world's most vulnerable? You know, I'm thinking about LGBTQI members uh, from from Iran who, who, you know, are fleeing persecution. I've done a lot of work on the Yazidi genocide. Um, How do we prioritize and care for those people in addition to the, you know, the citizens of Canada, even there's a huge deficit right now, if we are just basically running without a border, which is what's happening at the Quebec would call process like it's a non-existent border, right? Yeah, it's, it's not... It's, that, really, that really bothers me. It's not being done in any way, shape, or form as, uh, that, that makes sense. You have to have order. You have to have a system. And the system has to be respected, and it has to be run appropriately so that there is backup available when backup is required. So you don't have the mayor of Toronto saying... We're out of money. We don't have the money. We want to help, but we don't have the money. We, For Justin Trudeau to simply say, or his government to say, to people who are crossing the border into Quebec and, and Quebec is saying we can't take anymore, the, for the federal government to then say, well, we'll just offer you the option to go to Toronto, that is, that's, that's just not, that's not coherent. Well, and, and here's the thing, like, we're out of money, period. Like, I mean, the federal budget, like, the deficit is out of control. I mean, it's, it's actually out of control. Like, they, they can't even say how out of control it is. And so, so when, you know, if you've got leaders from across the country who are saying, well, we need more money, I would say, actually, what we need is a plan to make sure that immigration is orderly mm-hmm. and, and planned for in a sustainable way. So this is why we've been advocating for things like, and, you know, um, you know people on the left are losing their mind over this, but uh, we could and I'm not talking about putting up like physical infrastructure. We can legally, through legislation, actually the minister already has this power, deem the entire Canadian border, land border with the U.S., an official point of entry, just on paper, and the Safe Third Country Agreement would apply. So that, and what that would do is allow the CBSA instantly, in an instant, to apply the Safe Third Country Agreement to people who are legally crossing the border. Makes sense. Um, I mean, if you're going to, if you're Michelle, if you're sort of. Those are the sort of things we should be looking at rather than spending out of control and, and, and forcing people into homeless shelters. If you're going to have a safe third country agreement, then you can't say it's going to apply only at these particular border crossings where there is staff and where there, uh, where, 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 where there are buildings. You can't say that. If a safe third country agreement has to encompass the entire border of Canada with the United States, and that includes the lakes. Michelle, I have to uh, have to run, but thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's an good, important issue. Good talking to you. Michelle Rempel, the MP for Nose Hill in Calgary, the uh, citizenship and immigration critic for the Conservative Party of Canada. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. My guest is Colonel Peter Mansour, U.S. Army, retired the Raymond E. Mason Jr. Chair of Military History at The Ohio State University. He's the author of Surge, My Journey with General David Petraeus, and the Remaking of the Iraq War. Colonel uh, Mansour, how did this happen just weeks ago? Again, we were concerned North Korea would be lobbing missiles at Japan and maybe at the United States. Well, clearly, uh, Kim Jong-un has made a a strategic calculation to, uh, uh, you know, call a timeout in uh, his pursuit of nuclear weapons. and whether it's genuine or not remains to be seen. I mean, we've seen this movie before. There, there were nuclear freezes, two of them in the 1990s, one in 2007 and another in 2012, and they've all eventually collapsed 
due to North Korean leaders uh, seeking greater capabilities. Uh, so I'm I'm skeptical. Um, there's a lot of things that could be going on right now, but uh, we'll have to just wait and see how this plays out. If this is not the real deal, what would the long game be potentially for someone like uh, Kim Jong-un? So he and his father have uh, routinely uh, played this game where they advance their nuclear capabilities to a certain level, then they reach a plateau, and it's not like their nuclear capabilities are going to progress much at that point, and so they reach out, they have a peace feeler with the South, uh, they get um, certain things out of it, whether it be trade or um, uh, aid or uh, just a pause in in sanctions. Uh, they pocket those uh, those advantages, and then they, a few years later, when their nuclear program is ready to take another step, they they walk it back. Um, in 2000, for instance, uh, Kim Dae-jung, uh, the previous president of South Korea won the Nobel Peace Prize for uh, an agreement with uh, Kim Jong-il, Kim Jong-un's father, uh, to make steps towards peace on the Korean Peninsula. Um, Of course, that effort also collapsed. So North Korea may be making the the determination that it's it's reached a certain point in its nuclear program that it can't progress too much from this point on right in the near term, and so they, they reach out to the south. Uh, an optimist would say, well, the sanctions have had a, uh, an impact, they, they're biting, and the strategy of uh, the Trump administration and to put the pressure on North Korea has been working, and, um, and that the North is making a genuine peace offer at this point. But like I said, I'm skeptical. Now, when they say they'll dismantle their nuclear program and dismantle their test sites, is that, is that just window dressing potentially well they would they would have to agree to on-site intrusive uh, inspections right. this is where i think that it would be really hard for kim jong-un to um, to certify that he's he's denuclearizing um, there is a report out today by the way that the mountain that they used uh, as their test site has collapsed from the the latest test oh it has collapsed uh, right and and so <laughs> you know, if you don't have a place to test your, your nuclear weapons, it's going to take a while to create a new test site, and this may be his his uh, strategy in the near term is to reach out, um, feign a peace feeler, and, and uh, see if he can't pocket some, some uh, advantages, such as a relaxation of sanctions. Is there a timetable uh, where you'll be a little more comfortable? Are there indicators that you'd be looking for? Yes, I, I think if Kim Jong-un agrees to on-site inspections, um, I think that would be a major step uh, forward and would show his, his real willingness to um, actually denuclearize or at least let the outside world know where the program is at this point, because right now there's a lot of guesswork involved. So that's one thing I would look for. Um, you know, everything else that people are talking about so far is, is sort of window dressing a um, um, summit meetings and a supposed end to the to the war you know these are all pieces of diplomacy that are nice uh, but they're not hard power and what what would really signal I think his intention to um, 
to change would be to accept more on-site inspections by dispassionate third-party observers. All right. Colonel Mansour, thank you very much for the time. I guess for a dictator, you have to be seen to be strong all the time. Otherwise, yours may not be the decisions to make any longer pretty quickly. You could end up hanging from a lamppost in downtown Pyongyang. You could. Thanks for the time, Colonel Mansour. All the best. Thank you, Roy. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Frank McKenna, the former premier of New Brunswick, the deputy chairman of TD Bank, the former Canadian ambassador to the United States, has said it makes no sense for Canada to continue to sell its oil at huge discounts to the United States and world prices because it lacks the ability to get new energy infrastructure built. This is from the Calgary Herald. McKenna, who now serves as deputy chairman of the TD Bank, said work done by the financial institution indicates the price differential has cost Canada about $117 billion in the last seven years. So selling our oil to the United States, essentially solely, at the discount has cost this country, according to the TD Bank and its deputy chairman, the former Canadian ambassador to the United States, the former premier of New Brunswick, has cost this country of ours $117 billion in the past seven years. Scott Moe is the premier of Saskatchewan. He's back with us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Premier Moe, thank you very much for taking the time. And that that's quite a mouthful from uh, Mr. McKenna. It's an alarming number, isn't it, Roy? $117 billion over seven years. That's huge. I, I would also I would also put forward it's costing us uh, more as we as we go forward, uh, you know, proportionally more each and every day. I know in the province of Saskatchewan just this year, it's costing our province two point six billion dollars uh, to our economy directly. The federal, the, the provincial government two hundred ten million in royalties and taxes and other other uh, um, avenue other revenues uh, that we have from that industry. So it's a tremendous cost and a cost that we should uh, be making every effort to uh, to narrow. We've seen the Prime Minister, we've seen the the, the Premier of Alberta speak with the Premier of British Columbia, Mr. Horgan, and out of that has come really nothing. Have you had an opportunity to speak with Mr. Horgan, and uh, and, and if so, what did you what did you um, what did you get out of that? Yeah, I did have an opportunity to speak to speak uh, with uh, with Premier Horgan, and I appreciated the opportunity and. And I think we uh, agree to disagree on on uh, you know the approval of this pipeline. He has, uh, you know, he has his uh, his views um, on this, and, and we have ours. And our, you know, our view is is this: it was approved by the previous provincial government in in British Columbia. It's been approved by the federal reg- regulator, and it's been approved by the federal government. So it is a it is a pipeline that should be constructed. The construction should start shortly for a number of reasons. The first reason being uh, this is the safest way to transport this this uh, product. Uh, the second reason would be not only the jobs uh, associated in British Columbia and Alberta um, in the construction of it, but the employment and the added uh, benefit to our economy, which you alluded to and Mr. McKenna alluded to uh, into the future, would start to narrow that gap. We need access to other pipelines as well. But last but not least, I think, is we need to recognize and have a conversation around the sustainable nature in which we produce energy, uh, in particular in Western Canada, but in our nation, and start looking at opportunities to reduce our, our environmental footprint by by replacing energy products that are produced in other areas of the world with, with Canadian energy products. That includes, first, in our nation, 
but also uh, as we have the opportunity to export our products. And we need to, if we truly want to make an impact on, you know, um, on, on climate change, um, this is a way that we can make an impact and make it very quickly and benefit our economy at the same time. Do you believe the Trans-Canada Pipeline will be built and that the Prime Minister is sincere about the level of support he says he's willing to give to the pipeline? Well, the Trans Mountain Pipeline uh, should be built, and the, the the Prime Minister and the federal government should step up and 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 uh, provide uh, leadership on this and use every tool that they have to their avail. And I, I commend them for committing to passing legislation to reassert their their uh, jurisdiction in this area. But I've always said they they should use every tool they have, and that includes uh, withholding infrastructure funding. And I think I mentioned the other day they've shown they'll do this in areas where they do not have jurisdiction. They should do it here. They're doing it to you. They're doing it to us uh, in the way uh, that we have not uh, signed on to the pan-Canadian framework. They've uh, said they intend to not allow us to apply to the low-carbon economy fund. It would be about $64 million that we could invest in in furthering uh, reducing our footprint and enhancing sequestration opportunities here in the province of Saskatchewan. Um, we, we've always said we're going to apply for that fund anyway. We're, we're still part of uh, this great nation of Canada, and we expect to be considered for, for uh, you know, Canadian funding and transfers to the provinces. What's your view of uh, British Columbia taking the case about whether or not they have jurisdiction over the pipeline to the B.C. Court of Appeal? Well, it concerns me when I think everybody understands this is in the federal uh, purview, it's in the federal area of responsibility, that it may be, you, you know, just another tactic to attempt to delay or destabilize the investment climate around what is a very safe, a very efficient uh, way to get our products to market. And and I would put forward even uh, you know a, a net benefit to our economy and and the world uh, the world emissions uh, uh, standpoint is I say I say we need to continue to talk about replacing energy from other areas of the world with ours. You know, uh, we were talking earlier about the uh, I discovered this uh, during the weekend. I couldn't believe the number at first. In 2015, 650,000 barrels of oil from Middle Eastern nation and and the United States came into uh, eastern Canadian refineries every single day of the year. And nobody raises a peep of, of, uh, of objection to it. That's, that's perfectly fine. Uh, and, and clearly, if you're going to have environmental concerns in the West, you better have similar environmental concerns in the, in, in the East and in, uh, in, in, in Quebec. Uh, that doesn't seem to be the case. That's a huge number, 650,000 barrels a day. It's a huge number. It's a huge loss to our Canadian economy, and uh, I would I would go further to say it's it's actually detrimental to you, you know the global effort around climate change. We we have we have uh, a great industry here. In particular, I'll speak to the one in Saskatchewan and Western Canada. Our energy industry. When you look at the impact and the environmental suite of regulations that we operate under, um, whether it be the impact to our water, to our soil, to our land. Or to, or to our, uh, or to our, uh, with our emissions, and where we're going over the next number of years, we should most certainly be aggressively marketing, marketing these products around the world and replacing products in other areas because of because of the the financial impact that we can have on the Canadian economy, but also because it's the right thing to do from an environmental perspective. Are we headed for a national unity crisis potentially? Well, I, 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 I truly hope that we, we will be able as leaders across this nation to work our way, uh, you know, through some of these discussions, whether it be about access to our ports and our markets ultimately. Uh, this is the whole, this is the basis of how our nation uh, was formed and, uh, and continues to function, um, as well as uh, the, uh, you know, the imposition of what we have with the federal government that is, 
overstepping its bounds, uh, as it seems, and, and we'll we'll get a ruling on this in the next number of months with respect to uh, imposing, uh, you know, differential carbon pricing or tax system across the nation of Canada. And we'll find our way through that. I, I think it's up to us as leaders across the nation to have those sometimes tough uh, discussions. And, uh, and But we will find our way through this, and we, we just need to, I think, ensure that we keep top of mind um, you know, a strong Canadian economy, what's best for Canadians uh, across from coast to coast to coast. And, uh, you know, all of us do what we can can to contribute to that conversation, but to uh, contribute it to it in a, in a more fulsome manner, uh, you know, looking at it from a global perspective. And I, I think the, the construction of this pipeline is an important piece that the federal government needs to use their tools that they have. They also need to come up with a plan ensuring how, how this pipeline can actually physically be built on the ground. All right, Premier Monroe, thank you so much for the time. Thank you, Roy. I apologize for the uh, being a little bit late. Oh, no, just it's time zones. They're designed to confuse all of us. Well, I was thinking as I was uh, waiting to come on the call, if we can work our way through this uh, pipeline conversation and this carbon taxation conversation, I, it may be a bridge too far to uh, have a conversation about the uh, the, pa- the path of the sun. But we'll we'll, we'll see what happens. <laughs> Thank you again for the time. All the best. Take care, Roy. Premier Scott Moe. From Saskatchewan. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. So the alleged Toronto mass killer, Alec Manassian, is facing 10 counts of first-degree murder, 13 counts of attempted murder. And I was in touch with a, with a lawyer and a very disagreeable exchange of emails with the lawyer who was trying to convince me that a not criminally responsible plea was probably appropriate. What I do in circumstances like that is I call my friend Scott Newark, former Alberta Crown Prosecutor, former Executive Director of the Canadian Police Association, adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University, and I ask Scott what he thinks. Somebody going to try that, Scott? Uh, don't be surprised. I mean, don't don't forget the uh, the role of a criminal defense lawyer is not to ensure that the truth is revealed or not to ensure that justice is delivered. Their job in our system is specifically to help their client avoid criminal responsibility for their actions. So, you know, um, it, it wouldn't particularly surprise me if somebody uh, tried that uh, uh, scam, I mean, uh, defense. But mm. I don't think in the evidence that we're, we are aware of uh, today that it is... Uh, likely going to be successful at all. We've heard a lot about this incel situation, yeah. and I, I'm trying not to talk about it because I just said it's a bunch of creeps, and all you're doing is giving them legitimacy if you talk about it, but I guess it's part of the story, and, and, and what do you make of this? Where does this all fit into the picture? Well, I, I think a lot of, uh, frankly, most of us were pretty surprised. I mean, when the, the news originally broke about this, I certainly thought this was another Islamist attack. Uh, I think most people did simply because the, the the methodology of the attack was exactly what Islamists have used uh, around the world, and as you know, information sort of uh, uh, trickled out, and it looked at first that it might be somebody with mental health issues. I got to tell you that, frankly, worried me, and and still so with this uh, with this incel thing because it means that other uh, groups with some you know um, less than noble purposes appear to be using these uh, Islamist uh, terrorist uh, tactics, which is alarming, to say the least. Uh, I, uh, where it really struck me, Roy, was immediately, I think it was even on the, uh, the Monday night when Minister uh, Goodale 
Public Safety Minister Goodale came out and said, well, there's no national security concerns. I think that was the wrong choice of words, because this appears to be a group, albeit one that, you know, exists in the, uh, the dark uh, world of the uh, digital world and uh, social media, but that definitely has uh, what would, I think, fairly be described as an ideology uh, and a motivation. And uh, that was expressed in this guy's uh, uh, Facebook post when he referred to the rebellion being underway. And it is, it's more than people... I, I, I think it is actually fueled by that dark aspect of uh, social media and, and uh, digital online communications, because these are people who just vent, and they appear to gain strength from themselves, and it's narcissistic beyond belief. But it appears to have this uh, ideology, this uh, misogynist, anti-woman um, ideology, that uh, this is now the second example, its original sort of a champion, uh, this guy, uh, Elliot Roger, and now uh, this guy, uh, Manassian, appears to have actually taken... Uh, the way that they wish to express their views and manifestation of their ideology is by killing people. That's if he's that's, guilty. That's alarming. Right? That's if he's found guilty. Pardon and me? That's if he's found guilty. Um, well, frankly, whether he's found guilty or not, uh, I mean, I, I would go to the bank on the fact that he will be found guilty, and it wouldn't even surprise me if he just came in and, like the guy at the Quebec uh, mosque uh, shooting, just pled guilty. Uh, I don't think there is absolutely no doubt, even I think on what we know today and what we would have as evidence, that in fact he did what he did. Well, I have to have to be more circumspect because of the uh, broadcast law, but yes, you, you do, know but that I don't. you know that as a prosecutor. Yes, but um, I mean, I, this case, given the evidence that they have and things as specific as those postings, they've got video, they've got the actual interaction, all on video at the time of the arrest. Uh, it looks like they may even have a statement from We don't know what, if any kind of statement he's made to the police. It appears he may have said something while in custody. He will have rented the, uh, the van. And by the way, for the not criminally responsible, there's two ways in which you can establish that. One is that literally you're suffering from a mental disorder and you just don't know what you're doing. In other words, he, was thought, he, you know, he thought he was plowing a field or something. That's not going to be the case. The second would be that somehow it's, he didn't appreciate that it's morally wrong. The fact of him making that post, the fact that he rented a vehicle, which is the way in which the Islamists have done things. And I'd like to know what he said was the purpose of his renting his vehicle, because if he lied, you know, did he rent the vehicle saying, yes, I'd like to rent a vehicle so I can kill people, please? Okay, I bet you he uh, obviously didn't say that, and in fact lied, and people lie for a reason. So I think there is a mountain of evidence to rebut any assertion of a non-criminal response. Yeah, I'm, that was, I had a really, really disagreeable exchange with this lawyer about... Um, about NCR, and I, I usually like this guy, but uh, I, I think it'll be a long time before I get in touch with him uh, again. Look, you were the uh, you were a senior policy advisor to Stockwell Day when he was the public safety minister for Canada. Yes. So, from the perspective of the public safety ministry, you mentioned Ralph Goodale, saying it wasn't a national. What was it? What were his words? The phrase he used was that there was no national security concern. Right. So, what would you what would you advise? What can be done to stop these low tech that's the term that you used over and over, but nevertheless, deadly assaults. Um, the number one thing, uh, or pr guiding principle, I think, to go by is uh, do what you can and don't get trapped into the usual uh, government approach, which is I can't do anything if I can't do everything. Okay? We can do components and do little bits of things that may help reduce the likelihood or reduce the impact. 
But no single thing, in my opinion, is going to stop these kinds of attacks. And, and i got to tell you, uh, Roy, uh, it was uh, two days after 9-11 when I was having a meeting with then-Minister uh, Runciman, and I actually said what concerns me is about these mass population venue attacks, where because of our open and free society, we have people who are potentially vulnerable. So to a certain extent, you can try to you know, restrict vehicular access to that, but you can't do that on every street, but you can maybe do it in some specific, you know, um, locations. Um, secondly, I think you can do, we could look at what the Europeans are starting to do, by the way, is doing a link on vehicle rentals. When somebody goes in to rent a vehicle, that information is transferred to a database, and if there's a lookout for somebody, the uh, uh, law enforcement authorities are, are notified. Mm -hmm. um, I would be paying attention to who this group is now, this incel group, uh, both in terms of, um, you know, uh, making. I'm sorry, sure buddy. I've only got ten. Got... I've only got ten seconds left. Okay, um, and also, however, uh, trying to reach out to these guys uh, to uh, direct them off the path of uh, what they're doing because they obviously have some issues themselves. Mr. Newark, thank you so much for the time. Thanks, Scott. All right, Roy. Scott Newark, former Crown Attorney, former Executive Director of the Canadian Police Association. The Roy Green Show, weekends from two to five on 900 CHML.